it's a good sign when the actual pages of the Bible are going away. They're, they're wearing out. Uh, what a joy it has been to study this letter of James with you. It, it's only three pages in your Bible. I mean, in a modern-sized Bible, it's one, two, three. It's five very condensed chapters, and yet so rich with so much good truth of God and help for us in our journey. And it's just been a joy to be preaching this sermon series through James. Uh, we're calling it Faith at Work. This is really the message he's continuing to bring forth, that we would not lean on any form of false faith, but our true saving faith would be at work. It would show its fruit in our lives um, and just loving his audience well to even say hard things. Uh, I get the privilege to preach today, James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn there with me, uh, many of the scriptures will be on the screen. As Marilyn mentioned earlier, we have a note notes in the back. You can grab something to take notes on to capture what we're doing this morning, to study it further throughout the week. Um, calling today's sermon, Submitting to God. And uh, you'll see why in a second. Let's look at our passage today. I actually want to sneak in the very end of verse 6 where we finished last week and uh, then read verses 7 through 10. James 4, 6 and a half through 10. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Last week we looked at what life against God looks like. A sermon titled, War with God, Enmity with God, Fleshly Pride and Sin that is Opposed to Him. A life that is in love with the world and its agenda is at war with God. It's the teaching of Holy Scripture. Today, James shows us what a life that is for God looks like uh, when we are for God and therefore against the devil what true repentance looks like, and why humility is so central both for the beginnings of our faith, but the living out of our faith. And I'm excited to preach today's sermon. So with that, let's go. Look with me at verse 7, beginning part of verse 7. James says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We have to, whenever you see a therefore, you have to stop and say, What is it therefore? Uh, because there's a connection being made. Because of what was just said, do this. So what is it? Well, it's in relationship to what he just had in verse 6, which is why I included it in my reading a moment ago. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If God gives grace to the humble and is at war with the proud, then, or therefore, humble or submit yourself to God. Right, Because as we talked about last week, to be at war with God is the worst thing that could be in your life. Uh, when we're talking about submission to God, to submit ourselves to God, consider with me the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, and verse 7 and 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
looked at that last week. To be for the flesh and the agendas of the flesh is to be hostile to God and against God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who live by the flesh are opposed to God. Worst, like we said last week, God is opposed to you if you live in the flesh. Those who are bound in sin and enslaved to sin and have not surrendered to Jesus as Lord means they do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. But listen to what Paul says next in verse 9 through 11, Romans 8, 9 through 11. Speaking to Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. If you have true saving faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you've trusted your life to him, That means the Spirit of God now dwells in you. It means you have been raised from spiritual death to be with Christ. It means you're no longer Lord of your own life or under the Lordship of the dominion of darkness. You are under the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus is now the Lord of your life. The word submit here used by James means to be under to obey and be subject to the authority of something else or another. The verb is frequently used throughout the New Testament uh, in some pretty famous places. Luke uses it to describe Jesus' submission when he was a young boy to his parents. He did not sin. He obeyed his parents. Luke 2.51 Paul uses it to indicate a Christian's responsibility to submit to human government. In Romans 13, verse 1, Paul uses it to describe a wife's God-given role to joyfully submit to her husband's headship in the home. In Ephesians 5, 21 through 24, Um, Paul uses it to describe a slave's submission to his or her master in Titus 2, 9. But many people will say, but I'm going to submit to no one. I, I I don't submit to anybody. I'm my own person. And what you have to understand is the arrogance of that statement and the fallacy of it. Because according to Holy Scripture, people must understand that all of mankind is under the rule of something or someone else. We're under the rule of sin in that all that we do is for the desires of the flesh. Or we're under the rule of Jesus, therefore we submit and honor God with our lives. The term actually used throughout Scripture to really speak of this reality is the term or word doulos in the Greek, which means slave. Much of your modern English translation of the Holy Scriptures will translate that word slave, doulos, into the word servant. It softens it a little bit. Many of the places you read to be a servant of the Lord, really, it really is saying to be a slave of the Lord. Um, and I'm not talking about 
slavery as in there's many forms of slavery, not the atrocity, gross atrocity of the African slave trade, not that, but slaves as in the simplest form of being completely under the authority of another. The scriptures are clear that you are either, now buckle up, a slave to the devil or a slave to King Jesus. Like, wow, that sounds pretty radical. Well, it's what Scripture teaches again and again and again. We just don't really like it, so sometimes we want to soften that reality. Look with me at some Scriptures to understand this. Romans chapter 6, 16 through 18. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though we were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves to sin and the devil we see also in passages like Titus 3.3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred by others, and hating one another, living according to the flesh in sin. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus himself describes a, peop- a group of unregenerate, unsaved people saying, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. We also see passages that speak to being slaves to Jesus. A very big one is Romans 10, 9. It says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Master, Lord of our lives, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, see, we've so softened the idea of lordship that we kind of use it as this term of endearment and miss out on the fact of what that actually means. It means to have a master, that I'm under his authority and I submit to his rule in my life. It means I am his slave. Peter said it clearly of what true Christians are to do with the freedom that Christ has purchased us. 1 Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free. Now watch this. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, slaves of God. That's the word doulos right there. There's an example of what I was telling you. The Lord is our master. And when this is the case, we joyfully, fervently submit to him. As Christians, like slaves, our lives are for our master, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 2 Peter 2, 19, the second part, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so you have to begin to make this practical for you this morning. To what are you under? What overcomes you? What dictates the way you do what you do? Who are you pleasing 
in what you do. We have to be honest and look at our lives. I mean, the things we eat, the things we do with our free times, the ways you spend your money, the decisions you make, the relationships you have, what overcomes you? What powers dictate your emotions, your priorities, your thoughts, your actions? Who rules or what rules you? Whatever that thing is, to that is which you are enslaved, is what 2 Peter 2.19 says. Church, the heart of Christianity, get this, is to belong to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. When you say, I'm a Christian, what biblically that means is you're stating to another, I belong to Jesus. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you do not belong to yourself, for God has bought you with a high price, the blood of his only son. So we must honor God with our bodies or with your lives. Honor, submit to him, obey him. True saving faith in Jesus is freedom. It's the freedom to be not enslaved to sin anymore. You're unshackled from your slavery to sin and free from the condemnation that that sin deserves. That's the freedom that Jesus buys us. And it is the greatest freedom you could be given. You could be enslaved to a box your entire life, physical life, and be free in Christ and know the sweetest freedom that there is to have. freedom dying to ourself to live for Christ I hear the nuance of that freedom in Christ means you belong to him freedom and belonging don't typically go together in our modern thinking but it is critical that we get this not just in our head but in our hearts that it actually is good news to us Christian, what it means to be a Christian is to belong to Jesus, to submit your life to him, to live under his authority, to die to yourself and live to him. Listen to Paul's words later in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of his saving grace, we can even do what he's about to say, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Look at the submission in that language. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How I pray and have been praying that we will truly and fully submit to God in every way. To not be wise in our own eyes. To no longer live according to the priorities of the world or the longings of the flesh, but to live for God. To truly live for Him. To be under His authority. Do you count it a joy to be under the authority of God, to be a slave of Christ? Is that good news to your soul? 
do you joyfully call him master? What is amazing is that when we're reborn in faith, and we have faith in God, we don't want to be under the authority of another or ourselves. We, 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 we see the lostness in the ways of man in our flesh. We want to be commanded by God. We want His law to instruct us and direct us. And so I ask you again, do you submit to God in every way? I've known many Christians who've called themselves that over the years, who believe that, will say that, will run that race, and then they'll run into something that God makes clear in Scripture and say, yeah, but not that. I'm going to do that thing my way. I'm going to think about that thing with my modern lens, or kind of the way I was raised to think about that, even in church. I mean, one of the beautiful things that God's doing at Disciples Church is He's reforming the faulty thinking of our old traditions unto biblical foundations. We as a church and we as people are willing to reconsider the, pri- the priorities of our lives, the way we once thought about this or that or the next thing, and submitting ourselves to Scripture. What this means is that when we discover what God's Word says clearly, and that priority or command is opposite of what your flesh wants or thinks is best, Do you submit to God or do you go your own way? Do you go find other teachers who will tell you what you want to hear? Do you submit to him no matter how in love you are? Do you submit to him no matter how much financial sense it makes to you to do it different? Do you submit to him no matter what others might think, no matter how good it might feel to go another way. Do we honor God? Do we put our lives on the altar and obey His commands joyfully, willingly? Submitting to God is the call of our lives as Christians, church. I pray it be so. Do you understand that submitting to God also means that then you refuse to bow down to the devil and the workers of lawlessness and the ways of fallen creation? James goes on next to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Church, this is good news. To submit yourself to God, your new Lord, is to now stand against the devil, your old Lord. The word resist here means to stand against. And I want us to see that in this, there is no middle ground. There's no part way you can be in both camps. You are either for God or against Him. You are for the devil in the ways of the world or against Him. Jesus says clearly in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. James has already made it clear that friendship with the world means war with God. That was where we went in the last two Sundays. If you missed those, you can catch our podcast online, spend some time with the Word at home. Anyone who doesn't belong to Christ, anyone who doesn't submit to Jesus as Lord, belongs to the devil. Let me show you a couple of passages that point to this. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, speaking to Christians about their former reality. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following or submitting to the course of this world, following or submitting to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in who? The sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A sober but very needed understanding of the reality of our spiritual condition apart from Christ and saving faith Anyone who doesn't belong to Christ, anyone who doesn't submit to Jesus as Lord, belongs to the devil. Or as Jesus himself said in John 8, 44, they are of their father the devil and do the will of his desires. These people were similar in many ways to the people that James is writing to. They claimed allegiance to God. They claimed a love for God with their mouths. But their lives and their hearts were far away from Him. They were not for Him. They proved this by the life they lived, the words they spoke and the works they produced, the values they held, the will they fulfilled, who they truly belonged to. John says it in his first letter, 1 John 3, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. See, some of you thought when I first said that this morning that you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. You're like, wow, this guy's really radical. Really? Yeah. I mean, we've just seen it about 18 times in different scriptures. This is the truth of God revealed to us. might not be the way our modern society thinks about these things, but it is the reality. We need to see the truth of this. The position that people are in outside of Christ, outside of salvation. We need to do real business with this today. I've been praying for those of you in the room who this still applies to. While by God's grace you've been coming, you've been sitting under sound teaching of the word and being confronted with these truths, you have yet to really surrender your life to Christ. Or maybe you're like some of the people that are being written to in this letter where you've hung your hat on religion and claim faith in Jesus and yet there's not real fruitful maturity in your life and growing evidence of belonging to Him by which this is for you. But let me take it to another level so we can really make sure we don't miss this this morning. Understand that your family who has not professed or submitted their lives to Christ, they're not doing okay. They're not doing okay if they have good grades, if they have awesome skills on the field or at their instrument or at their craft. 
if they have amazing manners when interacting with others. They're not doing okay if they have a great job, a loving family, beautiful children. They're not doing okay outside of Christ because as the scriptures are clear, according to God's holy and infallible word, they are children of the devil. They are depraved, unregenerate children of wrath. God's righteous wrath is on them because of their sin. This is not mean. This is real. It's not unfair. It's exactly what they deserve apart from the perfect blood of Jesus to pay for their sins. It's exactly what they are outside of Christ. And to make light of that and to excuse that, or to just to make yourself think differently of it, is to not love them where they really are, with truth. But there is good news. <laughs> there is hope. There is a champion who has come, who crushed Satan's head, who defeated death, who unshackles undeserving sinners from their sin and slavery unto life with Christ. He is truth. He is the truth that sets people free. And as he declared of himself in John 8.36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? This is the gospel of Jesus, the work of Jesus, God the Son who took on flesh, the hope that is Jesus, the life we find only in Jesus. The good news is that God is adopting sons and daughters into his family. Wretched children of the devil, people deserving of eternal punishment by his grace. He is freeing them from those shackles, rescuing them this very day around the world. Maybe today in this room for some of you. Paul says it so well in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he, God the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son. The Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. I, I lovingly declare to you what scriptures declare. If you're here today and you've not truly trusted your life to Jesus, you've played light with religion, you don't belong to him. To repent of your sin and truly and fully trust your life to Jesus Christ. He will not share the altar of your life with anybody else. It's him or nothing. He's the priority. He's the Lord of your life. Or he is not your savior. To dismantle those two things is a modern gross work of man to make God fit into their own box. And is not the teaching of scripture.
rescuing people from the dominion of darkness. I want you to really kind of do business with me for that, with the moment. The dominion of darkness, the reality of evil, I mean, is so real and all around and at work. And you know, I don't have to tell you the way that's at play in your own families or workplaces or neighborhoods. You don't have to go far to see how it's perpetuated and propped up. I mean, just this very week, your TVs and your screens will be inundated with million-dollar movies that have been produced to make for entertainment the dominion of darkness. And I know for some of you, like, man, I really like a lot of that. And, and that's part of what I'm lovingly kind of trying to call you to, is to not play light with the things that are of the dominion of darkness to perpetuate evil. Do we have a right view of these realities by which this good news of saving grace is amazing? If Satan is the father of lies, then God is the father of truth, and Jesus is the word of truth. James says that we should resist, stand against the enemy, and he will flee from us. Do business with that for a second. Think about it. Why should Satan run away from little old me or little old us? And the answer has nothing to do with me, but has everything to do with Jesus. Right? That's why. Because the gospel promise of God made in Genesis 3.15 at the fall was that the serpent would find his demise in the Redeemer. And the Redeemer has come and conquered sin and death on the cross of Calvary. Because we now belong to Jesus, nothing can take us from his mighty grip. As he said in John 6.39, he will lose none of us who God has given him, but raise us up on the last day. Paul says in Colossians 2.13-15, we are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen? That's why when you resist the devil in Jesus Christ, he will flee from you because he is conquered and defeated. He is, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. We know that in Christ we are victorious against sin and Satan. While we are still in this short time in life at war with the flesh, and Satan still is allowed to have some dominion in this place, in lost place, the scriptures are clear that we who are in Christ will stand victorious, and Satan will be conquered, and death and sin will be put away. And so we go to battle, friends. We go to battle every day for the truths of God against the lies of the enemy. We resist the devil and he will flee from us. He will flee for we stand with the victor over sin and death, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's good news today, church.
Look with me at what James says next. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When we understand the great, the great, great, great chasm, massive, that separates us from God because of our sin, when you understand how big that is, His holiness, our imperfection, our wickedness and sin, how massive the separation is, when we understand that, then draw near to God and He will draw near to you is like an overwhelming sunrise sunrise after a dark and cold night. Think about this with me. The fact that we can draw near to God is great news if you understand what your sin deserves in the separation from Him. Think about that. The old covenant system of interacting with God that he had to put in place because of the wretchedness of man's sin, there was great lengths by which people had to go through and systems and the temple and the tent and the high priest. And only some could could go through certain activity to get close on behalf of the people. Just a few select priests. And other than them, no one could draw near God in the manifestation of his presence in the inner room of the temple or the Holy of Holies, this was because of our sin. Sin that brings out a great and worthy separation from God. Think about that. The Garden of Eden and the intimate fellowship with God that it represented before the fall was closed when mankind chose sin because of sin. Anyone who even touched the Ark of the Covenant where they carried the symbolism of God's presence among the people was killed immediately. Think about that. Think about what God is saying about who He is and who we are in not being able to draw near Him in that old system. I say all this because I want you to really consider the worthiness of God, the right, righteous holiness and perfection of God. We must understand we are not worthy to draw near God, nor He to draw near to us. You have to understand that. But... One of the sweetest words in all of Holy Scripture that have ever been written from pen to paper is the word B-U-T. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show His immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen? We will consider the words of Hebrews 10, 19-22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You, you have to, that just has to blow your mind. 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. It should be the same reaction we have to the statement, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If I have a right view of my sin, that just is boggling. What? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our heart sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Praise Jesus for he has made a way for us to be able to fellowship with God. By his death in our place, the curtain is torn. By his flesh being torn, he makes atonement for us to know God, to be reconciled, to have our sin forgiven so that we can fellowship with the holy God. (laughs) Can we take these simple words of James found here in James 4.8 with us every day? Take it with you every day, brothers and sisters. Put it into motion. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That is sweet, sweet truth. Praise Jesus. Look at the next part of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The origin of this idea of hand cleansing is a Jewish ceremony practiced in the Old Covenant which required the high priest to wash themselves, their hands and their feet, before entering the temple to make atonement for sins on behalf of the people. Let me me read you a couple places we see this stated. Exodus 30, 17-21. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons, those called the high priest, shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so they may not die. They shall wash their hands and feet so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. We see this instruction similarly, or the speaking of clean hands in other ways, like in places like Isaiah chapter 1, 15 through 16. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Clean hands represent a righteous or holy life. They're symbolic for that. And, and you might be thinking, man, this is a lot of old, old stuff you're reading about here. Well, no, we still talk this way all the time. What do we mean when we say we caught someone red-handed? Right? What do we mean when we say, hey, your hands are dirty of this? We essentially use those phrases to speak of guilt. You're guilty. 
Clean hands, referenced in Scripture, is important because they spoke of the purity needed before a holy God, that we can't come before Him guilty. In our guilty sin, we're unable to know and to fellowship with God. Since we cannot clean ourselves to warrant our worthiness to draw near the holy God, James is calling us here to repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. These phrases are being used as a call to his audience to repent. For those who have claimed faith and yet don't have real works, thereby proving that faith is real, he's calling them to repentance. Jesus said it this way in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The good news is that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners or practicing sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, you don't do anything to clean your life up to get right with God. If you leave here today thinking that's what you got to do, you miss the gospel entirely. You can't clean yourself up to get right before the Holy God. So then what? Well, Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, Adam's fall represents mankind, and so we're all guilty because of our federal head. So by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Who's the one man's obedience? Jesus Christ. That we can stand on his record, that his perfect record can be imputed to us, credited to us. Because we cannot clean ourselves, we must rely on or trust in the redemptive work of another. The only one who could pay for all of our sins, Jesus Christ, God the Son in flesh, was obedient and submitted to God's law perfectly. So when we repent and have faith in Jesus, we trust in him alone. We know that we are forgiven because Jesus has fully paid for our sins. We know that his work is completed and finished on the cross. It is finished. This is the basis of our faith. It is the basis of our salvation. It is the basis of our restored relationship with God. Without it, I can't get close to the Holy God. I can't draw near to Him, nor will He draw near to me in my sin, apart from Christ. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, is a call to repentance. Notice it's an outward and an inward thing. Cleanse your hands, symbolizes the outward practices that were symbolic of these things. Purify your hearts is the inward. James brings a clarity that Jesus also emphasized time and time again, and that is that we must avoid or move away from the temptation to think that I can make myself look good on the outside and that that's sufficient. I can clean up and maybe put on a mask and kind of make you think I'm someone I'm not. But it's deception. It's not true testimony of our heart and our faith in God. Jesus said this to double-minded, hypocritical Pharisees of his day, Matthew 23, 25-26. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Also he said in Matthew 15, 8, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart are far from me. I believe this is why James doesn't stop at just saying cleanse your hands, but also says purify your hearts. James is saying this from the beginning. If our faith shows itself in actions that honor God, if we're going to see then real change and transformation, that means that starts with the heart, not just with changing your actions. It must happen within James' emphasis of double-mindedness is a way of saying you can't have it both ways. Like we said earlier, you're at war with him and are against him or you're not. We're either born again or we're still dead in our sin. We do not, cannot serve two masters. We will love one and hate the other. Or as the Lord says in Romans 13, 16, because you are lukewarm, trying to play both sides, you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Church, repentance is confession, but it's not just confession. It's not just admitting you're guilty. It's turning It's turning from sin and turning towards Jesus. It's back to a life that submits to Him because of the gospel. It's passing over the line of belonging to yourself. I belong to Jesus. It's dying to yourself to live for Christ. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is calling them to true and total repentance and faith. For without this, there is no submission to God. You will not resist the devil. You will not draw near to God. Instead, you will walk in the ways of false belief that you are saved because you did some kind of outward action, did just enough religious activity to make you think yourself is okay. Is there real repentance? And then so he takes it another step. Look with me at verse 9. This is a great blessing. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Some of you heard me read that in the opening passage. You're like, dude, what is he saying there? Like That seems so opposite of where we're supposed to go in Christ, right? Again, this is a call to repentance. Quickly, wretched here in the Greek means afflicted. He, he's actually prescribing an attitude of remorse. Be afflicted, mourn and weep. So we can ask, why such a harsh prescription of lowliness? This is the way of calling for the depths of remorse that comes with true repentance. When, by God's grace, you see the depths of your sin and your betrayal of His worthy holiness, it breaks you. It turns fleshly laughter into proper mourning. Church, this is something you want to experience in this life. You want to experience wretchedness, mourning, weeping, laughter turning into mourning, joy into gloom. Because if you don't, you will experience that and only that for eternity. Jesus says it this way. Jesus says in Luke 6.25, Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. 
track with me here. If our faith is real, we will not then have a casual lament or attitude towards how gross our sin is before the holiness of God. We will be properly broken. The flippant and misguided laughter of our former sin-indulging self will be converted into proper sorrow for the reality of our sin before the worthiness of God. The joy we had in temporary things and idols of the heart will turn to righteous gloom. The taste of sin will lose its sweetness and will start to turn into something bitter and nasty. Just as James has been saying all along that true faith shows itself in God-honoring works, he's saying here, true repentance of sin shows itself in authentic sorrow and remorse for that sin. I mean, I don't have to go far to make this clear. Can you imagine if your family was massacred by some kind of monster, brutally killed, and he stands before the judge, and you're in the room that day, and he just goes, yeah, I mean, I did it. Do you you guys know what we're having for lunch today? Can you imagine just how clearly there is no remorse? And how justice is due. Church, the grossness of our sin before the holiness of God is worse than that situation. Do we have a righteous remorse for what it is before the holiness of God? Paul says it this way to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief... Produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The good news is that that remorse doesn't remain, it turns into joy because of the gospel. But this is James' way of pointing his hearers who are in danger of not having true saving faith or because they have false faith, he's saying there is a godly sorrow for sin that is a true sign of real repentance. It's another way that true faith shows itself in its works. A perfect example of this Jesus gives in a story he tells in Luke 18, 10-14. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you, God, I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We must have a proper, true repentance before the holiness of God. Or what we're hanging our hat on potentially is something man-made. Do you see the proper, humble response in this man seeing his sin in in his unworthiness of God? 
When Peter was caught in sin, Peter, who was devoted to Jesus, Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, come on, man, there's no way. I'm Peter. I ain't going to do that. The rooster's going to crow twice in, in Mark 14, 72. Immediately when the rooster crowed a second time after Peter had, had denied him three times, Peter remembered how Jesus said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And what was Peter's response? He broke down and wept. Beloved, do you have a true and God-honoring indignation and disdain for your sin? Does it bring about a righteous response of true repentance, which is a woefulness for its betrayal for all that God is due? Does this godly sorrow bring about true repentance that means changing your ways? It's not enough for you to go in the room and cry for four days and then come out and make no change. True repentance means change. It means a new path, a new practice, a new attitude that glorifies God. Church, this is how we are doers of the word and not hearers only, thereby deceiving ourselves. As James has already said in James 1.22. Quickly, I conclude with this in verse 10. He says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. James has come full circle, has he not? Consider again in his words in verse 6 where we started. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is the proper starting point and daily practice of true salvation. We are humbled, watch this, by our lowly sin, rightly remorseful and repentant. We're humbled by it. And we're totally and utterly humbled that a holy God would pursue us in our wicked rebellion to pay for our release and atone for our sins to free us so that we could draw near to Him. We're utterly humbled by that so that we can rightly and joyfully submit to Him and know Him forever. See how this comes together? True God-honoring righteous humility doesn't look to make excuses or posture oneself to look good in the eyes of others. Man, we're so guilty of that, are we not? Something goes down at work, something between a relationship, and you kind of want to say, but, you know, like, here's how, I didn't really intend, here's how this went, and we kind of just want to, like, in a posture of real humility, it's like, yeah, I messed up. I'm really, really super bummed that that's messed us up. I, I just want to confess that. I want to, I want to repent from. I want to grow from here. That we, the church, would be quick to practice repentance, not slow to it. Not in pride would we be slow to it. We'd be quick to it. There'd be humility. That's actually a sign of maturity in our lives in Christ. This is the humility and the posture of Isaiah before the Lord when he said in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Powerful words, is it not? But consider this all the more. This is what really makes it powerful. 
Isaiah, when he's writing this, is the most prominent, most successful prophet of his day. He is the man. And yet his utter brokenness is over the thing that he is best at, the using of his mouth. See, our tendency is to not be repentant about the things we're good at. We're prideful about those things. He's broken. Why? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He sees who he rightly is apart from the holiness of God. And it's broken him. It's humbled him in a right way. This is true repentance. This is humility. James is is giving us one of the ways our faith goes to work and shows itself in true humility. God will lift up those who have been truly and rightly humbled by his saving grace. Those who have been rightly repented of their sin and trusting themselves to the glory of the Lord. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the testimony of the prodigal son who went and spent all of his money on wild living and gets to that place in God's providence. He, it says in, in Luke 15, 18 through 19, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then later in verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is a picture of what happens when God gives us eyes to see our sin, the beauty of the gospel. We will humbly confess our sin and fall before our Father in heaven, and He will show us His amazing grace to receive us into His eternal family. This is the greater grace that we looked at last week in James 4-6, through given to those whom God has truly called to come into his presence in repentance and humility, we will exalt, he will exalt us, and we will be able to draw near him and know him and glorify his name. Oh, I pray it be so. May we joyfully submit to our God and draw near to him. May our faith be at work in all of these wonderful ways. Amen? Stand with me and pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together to study your holy word, to be confronted with these marvelous truths. Lord, we're guilty. We're so guilty of making our days so much about the temporary and and about just temporary things. And so you have blessed us to do business with eternal things today that we would not in our flesh want to just put them off and go on to whatever is coming and, and sell out for more temporary things, but there'd be a, a stirring in our souls, a hunger to know more, to grow, and to do business with these things in our lives. I pray that this morning is a catalyst to every person here's time in the Word and together in fellowship this week, that if you would ordain it, we would leave this place and go into this week on mission to testify of these things, that you would be glorified in us. 
that we would grow in these ways and you would be lifted high. We celebrate this gospel that sets us free with a vigor and a passion and a joy. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing in our church and around the world today. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, let's sing together as we go.